Can you describe in, in detail the liberation and, and how he was taken out of Germany and how he was stuck outside of Germany? It's, again, urge all our readers to purchase the book and read because that's a fascinating story in its own right. Now he comes back to Germany. What is his mission post-war initially in Germany? Right. So this is sort of a dramatic story, and I won't go into it in detail right now, but um, he's not liberated by the Americans at Dachau. Um, He's whisked away from Dachau with all these special prisoners into the Alps of northern Austria and Italy. And it's there that he is rescued first by the German army um, because he had been whisked away by the SS and the German army is in Italy fighting the Italians and the Americans. And the German army um, was not itself fully Nazified. And so they um, found these special prisoners and they liberated them from the SS. And then when the Americans arrived, they liberated um, the special prisoners from, from the German army. So Niemöller is now in the hands of the Americans, which is a good thing. Uh, he's flown to Naples, Italy, where um, he's held for a fairly long period of time. Um, he's, he leaves Dachau in late April, and he doesn't get reunited with his family until late June. And so during this period, he is kind of furious that he has spent eight years in a concentration camp. He's considered you know, one of the more famous German resistors, and yet the Americans are not treating him with sort of the respect I think he thought that he deserved. Um, At any rate, the the concentration camp experience did not change Niemöller as drastically as you might think. He still maintained some of his nationalist outlook. um, And when he's interviewed after his experience in the concentration camps by some Americans in Naples, he voiced some opinions that people found um, pretty offensive. Um, a continued sort of nationalist German outlook. He said that he didn't think Germans would feel responsible for the Nazi era or for the concentration camps. He blamed everything on the Nazis as if this was not a German problem, but just a Nazi problem. That interview um, was a bit of a scandal. And afterwards, he received a lot of criticism and he received a lot of visits from um, American Protestants from Karl Barth, from a, uh, uh, a Dutch Protestant um, who was prominent in the World Council of Churches. And they all kind of coached him a little bit, explaining, you know, we need you to be the voice of repentance. We need you to be the German model for coming to terms with the Nazi past. And they encouraged him to think that only he could do this because he had spent eight years in a concentration camp. And so if he were to come out acknowledging his guilt and his responsibility for Nazism, that it would be a a model for other Germans to confess their guilt, responsibility and so forth. And so um, he he has this sort of turnaround during this period where he begins to realize that he has um, uh, an important role to play in, in, in the rebirth of Germany after Nazism. And um, one of the things that he does is he, he helps to draft um, the famous Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt from October 1945. And the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt is important because he 
um, the, the, the church, it's written by, it's written by church leaders, Nemo are the most important of them. They acknowledge the suffering that Germany has caused on other countries in Europe. Um, they confess their guilt and no other major institution is doing this. Just the German Protestant church. Most of the other institutions were crushed by the Nazis. There are no political parties. There are no trade unions. Um, so people are looking to the German Protestant church for direction and they come out with this declaration of guilt. And it was a really um, sort of shocking moment. A lot of Germans were irate about this because they felt that admitting to the guilt of the German people and the guilt of the church was going to result in a harsher occupation policy by the victors. On the other hand, it was really important because the churches of Europe and the American Protestant churches were very much um, relieved that Niemöller confessed the guilt of the Protestant church and of himself personally, because it then allowed them to reestablish a relationship with German Protestantism. Was uh, Niemöller involved in post-war Christian-Jewish dialogue, reconciliation, especially perhaps on his barnstorming PR trip to the United States after the war? Yeah, so... I should mention uh, in the lead up to answering that question that after the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt was issued in October of 45, Niemöller then goes on a year-long tour in Germany preaching the message of the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt. And it's during this year-long tour in Germany that he begins to develop his famous confession because he wanted to, again, model for the German people what it meant to show one's repentance. And so he would talk at these various venues around Germany um, that, you know, when the Nazis arrested communists, because I wasn't a communist and I didn't like them, I didn't stand up and protest. And when the Nazis came and arrested Jews, because I wasn't a Jew and I didn't have any feelings for them, I didn't stand up and defend them. Um, and so that's really the origins of his famous confession in that 1946 German tour. Um, the Americans invite him to the United States to give a speaking tour, again, in part because of the Stuttgart Declaration of the Guilt and this evidence that he had um, was, 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 was repentant. Um, and so he comes to the United States, as you say, and spends about five months um, going from one city to another talking about um, the experience of being in a concentration camp and his um, sort of Christian activism. Um, he does not repeat the famous confession in the United States, and he does not have much contact with American Jews. Um, but to get directly to your question of whether or not he participates in the Christian Jewish dialogue in the post-45 period, he does, but he was not at the forefront of it. So for example, in 1948, he participated in the first conference of the German Evangelical Protestant Committee for Service to Israel. This is not the state of Israel, but to the people, to Jews. And so this was um, sort of the Protestant side of the Jewish Christian dialogue. So he participates in the very first conference, which took place in 1948. Present at the conference was Germany's most famous rabbi, Leo Beck, who gave a talk at the conference and was quite a sensation. 
Um, Niemöller also was a strong advocate that the Protestant church needed to make a statement of um, condemnation of anti-Semitism, and they needed to um, atone for their failures to defend Jews during the Nazi period. The German Protestant church had failed to do that in the Stuttgart Declaration. The Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt was general. It didn't mention the Holocaust. It didn't mention Jews. And ever since then, the leaders of the Protestant church had been debating, discussing, arguing about the need for a specific statement. And so Niemöller did become an advocate for a statement. And in Berlin, they came out with this famous statement called the Berlin Weisensee Statement in 1950, where they have a very forthright condemnation of anti-Semitism. Um, and they um, acknowledge uh, their guilt for having remained silent when Jews were rounded up and murdered throughout Europe um, during the Holocaust. It clearly comes across in the book that Niemöller was a dominant personality. It was just like lo- almost a larger-than-life personality. And I think you alluded in the book that there were some that thought that he would play a very active political role uh, in political leadership in Germany post-war. Why did that not happen? So Niemöller, during his years in the concentration camp, re- received thousands, probably tens of thousands of letters, of fan mail. All across the world, people were writing Niemöller, um, applauding his defiance of Hitler. Um, when he gave that infamous interview in uh, June of 1945 in Naples, where he sounded as if he hadn't learned many lessons from the Nazi period, he came off as a nationalist. Um, he fell out of favor for a little while. So it was during the concentration camp period that some people put his name forward as a potential leader of post-war Germany. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have somebody who resisted Hitler and was a moral, ethical um, leader to become the next leader of Germany politically. Um, But he really sort of, um, people I think realized that while he could perhaps play some political role, that he was not meant to be a political leader. Um, He did believe that the most, one of the most important lessons he took from the Nazi period was that the church has a political role to play, that the church cannot stand by and watch Um, a totalitarian dictatorial government come to power without condemning it. And this was really one of the most important messages that Niemöller preached in the post-45 period, that the church should not remain a quiet um, institution when it came to political affairs. So Niemöller voiced his opinion about politics regularly after 1945. He never ran for political office. He wanted to remain a pastor for the rest of his life. Um, So he tried to sort of infuse politics with some Christian and ethical um, tenets. This led in part to him becoming a pacifist um, during this period. And he spends really his life after 1945 engaged in faith-based activism. He travels the globe, as you indicated. 
he's in Africa, uh, he's in Asia, he's in India, he goes down to Chile and Latin America, he's in Australia, New Zealand, all over the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc, travels to the Soviet Union, ends up in Vietnam, South Vietnam, meets with Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam. He becomes a serious leftist, progressive political activist. Um, and so what I think is so remarkable about his life is that he makes this transition from being a militarist and a nationalist Protestant to being um, a progressive activist and um, a leader of the ecumenical movement. Um, and embracing pacifism was part of this transformation. What was the theological jump that led him to this anti-war pacifist position as opposed to being one who said, now we have to rebuild Europe, um, freedom, democracy, uh, the war against the uh, Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain. Theologically, what was that progression? Yeah, that's a little hard to explain, but it does, it does, um, it does happen during this period from basically 1948 until about 1954. Um, he's having more and more contact during this period, he becomes sort of the foreign minister of the Protestant church, which involves all this travel I was talking about. So he's coming into contact with all sorts of people. Um, and one group that he comes into contact with is um, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a pacifist organization. One of the leaders is this well-known guy, A.J. Mustay. And Niemöller comes into more and more contact with these types of, of individuals, in part because he's more and more associated with the progressive wing of Protestantism in Germany. Um, his, his movement toward pacifism is also influenced by the Korean War. The Korean War breaks out in 1950, um, when the North Koreans invade the South. This is um, of a concern to Germans, because Germany has an East an eastern part of Germany that's communist and a western part of Germany that's liberal democratic. So there's a fear that perhaps the East German communists would invade western Germany, just like the North Vietnamese, com North Koreans, communists invaded South Korea. And so there's a number of different sort of factors that come into Niemöller um, transitioning from somebody who had embraced war, um, even as a Christian, to someone who actively uh, protested war, nuclear weapons, and um, any sort of um, remilitarization of Germany after 1945. You know, once the Cold War begins, um, many of the Western powers, including the United States, um, believed that it was time for Germany to Western Germany to remilitarize, since they were right on the border with Eastern Germany and, and the Iron Curtain. And Niemöller was terrified that, you know, East Germans and West Germans would, would go to war against one another um, and that they would be sort of the center of any sort of nuclear Armageddon. And so this also influenced his movement towards pacifism. Um, one thing that was kind of crucial in all of this was that um, the, the so-called father of nuclear chemistry is this German uh, scientist called Otto Hahn. And Otto Hahn and Niemöller met in 1954. And Otto Hahn explained that the atomic bombs dropped in 1945 on Japan were nothing compared to the hydrogen bombs that had been um, developed since then. 
And he said in 1954 to Niemöller that um, nuclear warfare today would, would mean the annihilation of the planet. And so Niemöller says that um, when he heard this, he read through the entire New Testament looking for any evidence that Jesus um, would have in any way whatsoever supported a war, even a just war. And he came to the conclusion that there was no evidence in the New Testament to defend warfare, especially nuclear warfare. And so from that point on, he announced his pacifism in 1954 and spent much of the rest of his life advocating for a pacifist position. He was a, a very strong critic after first supporting it, uh, the Korean War, and a very strong critic of the war in Vietnam and of the nuclear arms race. As you teach this subject, Martin Niemöller, to your students at Skidmore, and as you speak to audiences, what's the message that you try to impart, especially to young people, and why should they study? Why should young people study the life of Martin Niemöller? I think a lot of young people come to Martin Niemöller, and I think this makes sense to me, through his famous confession. Millions of people have visited the Holocaust Museum in D.C., where his confession has a very prominent spot. As you're ending your trip through the exhibition, you are confronted with the Niemöller quote. Um, First, they came for the communists, and because I was not a communist, I did not protest their arrests. Uh, When they came for the socialists, since I was not a socialist, I did not speak out. When they, the Nazis, came for the Jews, since I was not a Jew, I did not speak out. When the Nazis finally came for me, there was no one left to speak out. I think that this is a really good place to sort of enter your understanding of Niemöller because it's a confession of, of guilt. It's a confession of responsibility. Niemöller was a free man from 1933 to 1937. And during that period, communists socialists, trade unionists, Jehovah Witnesses, the incurably ill, and Jews were arrested, sent to concentration camps, sometimes sent to their deaths. And Niemöller was a prominent pastor, um, uh, a privileged man in many ways, and he didn't speak out for the most part during that period. And so his message in this quotation is really about the dangers of being indifferent to the persecution of people who in one way or another are different than you. They might be different than you politically, like the communists or um, ethnically or religiously, but it's important when innocent people are arrested or are oppressed for those people who are not in that position to speak out. And so I think that that's one very important reason to study Martin Niemöller for young people to come into contact with his life and his thought. I think a second reason that I've that I find very admirable is his willingness to change, his willingness to practice self-introspection and self-reflection. He, in a sense, he, he's a very stubborn man. On the other hand, he showed a willingness to evolve politically and morally during his life. There are not too many people who do this, and there weren't too many Germans who were willing to do it after 1945. And I think it's admirable that he was willing to um, rethink cherished convictions that he had during much of his life and to genuinely embrace um, positions that he would have never thought of earlier. So he makes this transition from being a militarist to being a pacifist. 
And that's a genuine transition. He makes a transition from being far right to being progressive. And he makes a transition, perhaps not as perfect as we would like, from being an anti-Semite to being um, a fighter for racial justice. Uh, all of these transitions are halting, somewhat incomplete, but at the same time, genuine and very noticeable in his politics um, after 1945. It takes decades to go through these, through this evolution, but he does um, change. And I think that in itself is something that we don't see very often these days. People are very wedded to their political positions, and no matter what type of evidence or um, opposition they hear, they rarely change their opinions. And I'm glad to see someone do it. He's kind of a model in that sense. We can go on and on. There's, there's, there's so much. Uh, but I, again, urge our viewers and listeners to, uh, to purchase, purchase the book as, as I did. And they came for me, uh, Martin Nee, the pastor who defied uh, the Nazis. And uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's just really, it was, it's, it's a fascinating account. And, and the book really uh, says it all. And again, urge all our readers and viewers to, to go on Amazon and simply purchase it. Uh, well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.